his story. We come to a text today that is probably one of the most familiar texts for those of us raised in churches of Christ. I memorized it when I was just a kid. I mean, it was just part of what you were expected to memorize uh, in the church that I was a part of when I was growing up. And, and so, if, if I were to start quoting it, you would pick up on it immediately. Probably as knowledgeable in Churches of Christ as John 3.16. And yet, it's a passage that has been steeped in controversy for now some 1,500 years. You see, one of the problems with Acts 2, 38 and 39 is that there's been some theological and historical missteps that has just created a lot of confusion around it. The first misstep was this one. Acts 2, verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized. That's the way I, I, I remembered it, memorized it as a kid. But the meaning of that Greek word, baptizo, and you may notice that we say baptize, they said in Greek baptizo. I mean, you can see that we simply took the Greek word and we anglicized it. But here's the problem with that word. That word over the last 1,500 years has changed meaning. It's a word that no longer means to immerse, which is what it meant in the first century when the New Testament was written, but it has become for many people to mean to sprinkle or to pour. And it's this change of meaning that created a huge problem for those who translated the Bible. You see, if you're going to translate the New Testament from Greek into English but a word has changed its meaning so that literally, for some people, for a thousand years, it is meant to sprinkle or to pour. And here you have, you know, just generation after generation after generation whose baptism was sprinkling as an infant, and all at once English translators come to a word which means to immerse. What do you do with that word? Because it doesn't mean to sprinkle or to pour. It means to dip, to submerge, to put under the water. And so what they did was they simply transliterated it. They, they left it to its church meaning. And because of that, as we have received our Bibles in the English text, most of them, in fact almost all of them, I'll give you the exceptions here in just a second, have refused to translate the word. Now, I want you to think what would happen if we did that with any other Greek word. That if we said, you know what, I'm not going to translate the word. It's going to cause too much controversy. I would rather just leave it the way it was in the Greek so that you can pretty well read into it whatever meaning you wanted. Imagine that. And yet that's what we've done. That's what the King James Version did. It's what the American Standard did. It's what the New American Standard did. It's what the NIV did. It's what the Revised Standard, the New Revised Standard. It's what, and you just go down the list. In fact, if you go to BibleGateway.com, you'll find that there are 50, let's see, 61 translations of English there. 61 of them. Of those 61, 59 of them 
did not translate the Greek word baptizo. They transliterated it. 59 out of 61. Now, there are true translations that did translate the word. And here's what's fascinating about those translations. They're both Jewish translations. Isn't that interesting? Why would Jewish translations translate the word baptizo? And the answer is simple. You see, Jewish people, understanding the world of the first century, they knew what the word meant. They weren't hung up with a thousand years of church dogma. They simply wanted to translate the word. Notice the first one here. This is called the complete Jewish Bible, CJB. You see it over by uh, the verse there. And notice how it translates it. Kepha answered them. Kepha is simply the Aramaic word for Peter. means a rock. Kepha answered them, turn from your sin. We would say repent. Return to God and each of you be immersed. And then notice the rest of it. On the authority, we would say in the name of. They understood what that meant. On the authority of Yeshua. That's Jesus' name in Aramaic. Yeshua, or Old Testament, we would call it Joshua. In the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, into the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you say, Les, I can't understand a Jewish translation like that. Yeah, I know. It's kind of tough. But at least they're doing it right. Here's another one that came out just a few years ago. It's called the Tree of Life Translation. It's a translation made by, of all people, Messianic Jews. There's a fairly large group of Jews who've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They're referred to as Messianic Jews. And they put out a translation called the Tree of Life. Look at how it translates it. Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be immersed. There it is. They, they make it more like the way we speak. They don't use the Aramaic for uh, Peter. They do use the Messiah, Yeshua, notice there. And you'll receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. Once again, the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't it interesting that Jews translating the New Testament are not afraid to translate that word while those who are in the Christian community refuse to translate it. In fact, I know of only one Christian translation that actually translated it, uh, at least as, as far as here that became popular in the United States. It was a translation called the Living Oracles. It came out of all things in the 1820s. And this translation came out, and notice how it translates it. And Peter said to them, Reform and be each of you immersed in the name of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on, In order for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was a translation put out by the Restoration Movement, a movement that we're heirs of. That's where Churches of Christ came from was this movement back in the 1800s to go back and can we just restore New Testament Christianity? This is Wikipedia, what it says about this translation. The translation was widely used within the Restoration Movement. Churches of Christ, Christian churches, disciples of Christ. But was criticized by others for its translation of baptizo as immerse rather than baptize. In other words, they translated it and they were criticized for it. Why? For the very reason I mentioned most vigorously criticized by groups practicing infant sprinkling. 
And so the first problem with Acts 2, 38 and 39 has to do with just the translation of that word baptizo. A second problem with it is that it became a casualty, this verse did, of the Reformation debate on justification. Martin Luther started the Reformation movement some 500 years ago now. In the early 1500s, Luther, who was a, a Catholic priest, became very discouraged with what he saw in the Catholic Church, especially in the area of justification. One of the things that was going on in the early 1500s was something called the sale of indulgences. Now, we don't practice indulgences in churches of Christ. It's not a biblical concept. It, it basically arrived out of Roman Catholicism and the belief that when you died, if you were not the kind of Christian you should have been, you didn't go into heaven, you went into purgatory instead. And purgatory was this place of punishment to try and purify the Christian because of the sin that they had committed. And those who are alive could shorten the length of a person in purgatory, a relative, let's say a father or a mother, that they knew, guess what? They weren't what they should be. They're definitely in purgatory. How can I get them out? And you could do certain things that supposedly would bring about the shortening of that time period. The priest would give you perhaps prayers to say or service to do in the community. But in Martin Luther's day, they were building the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. And they needed money. And so the Roman Catholic Church started selling indulgences. Selling forgiveness. In other words, if you didn't want to spend time in purgatory, you could buy yourself out of it. And that just sent Martin Luther over the edge. And Martin Luther began to read the book of Romans and, and, and he realized that in Romans, Paul said that justification is not by, you know, praying or, or, or going out and doing good deeds. Justification was based on faith in Jesus Christ. And so Luther began to preach that. Before long, the Reformation movement began to spread throughout Europe. But one of the things Luther did in his emphasis on faith is he kind of slingshot away from Roman Catholicism over here to, to the point of where he said the only thing required of the believer is faith only. Faith only. In fact, he put that in his translation of the Bible into German. And of course, the debate then began to rage. What about things like repentance? What about baptism? What do you do with baptism if you believe in faith only? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? That became one of the big questions of the Reformation movement. And, of course, that question when asked, and it's still asked today all the time, people want to know, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And what that does is it moves baptism from a covenant relationship, uh, a, a covenant relationship act, to a legalistic debate. And the problem with that is that basically you're, you're looking at a relationship and trying to define it in ways that you should try to define it. I think marriage is the closest thing to it. I tell people all the time, in all of my years of performing weddings, I've yet had a couple come up to me and say, do I have to kiss during the wedding ceremony to be married? They've never asked me that question. Not one time. You know, in fact, when I say to them, this is the point where I say, you may kiss your bride, they all go, yay! You know, they don't think of that as something you have to do in order to be married. 
And you know, in so many ways, baptism is for the Christian our marriage ceremony. And, and, and what's interesting is that that question, do you have to be baptized to be saved, is never asked in the New Testament. Why? We're going to look at that here in just a moment. Luke chapter 7 is the only text that deals with the issue of baptism as far as, you know, should you do it, should you not do it. And this has to do with John's baptism. But notice what Luke wrote about that. All the people, even tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Why? Because they had been baptized by John. Then look at the next phrase. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them. How did they reject God's purpose? By refusing to be baptized by John. Can I ask you a question? If Pharisees rejecting John's baptism put them in opposition to the purpose of God, what about people who reject Jesus' baptism? Where does that put them? I think you see the point that Luke was trying to make. And then the third theological historical misstep has to do with us. You see, we made a mistake with Acts 2, 38 and 39. And that mistake came with the fact that we... I can get it to work here. We, we neglected the most important part of the text. And you say, what, what do you mean we neglected the most important part? You see, growing up, this is the verse I memorized. And this is the verse I was taught. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that was what was said when a person was baptized. We might add, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it was to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The problem is, that's only part of the verse. We truncated the verse. We cut it off. We left off the most important part. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise. What promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. That's what Peter is talking about. Forgiveness of sins? Of course that's important. But that's the past. What do you do about the present and the future? How do you deal with sin in your life from now on? And the answer is, God gives you a helper called the Holy Spirit. And notice, that promise is for you, your children, for all those who are far off, which is us, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And what happened to us is that because of neo-Pentecostalism that was kind of raging in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, in churches of Christ, our response to that was much like Martin Luther. If they're over here, let's slingshot over here. Let's simply cut the Holy Spirit out of the Christian's life, period. Now, some of you didn't experience that. I did. I suspect Blake did, knowing he's from Alabama. I mean, uh, I've oftentimes said Alabama's the only state I know in churches of Christ that just kind of said, no Holy Spirit, you know. And, and you're like, what's going on? And what's going on again is this reaction to neo-Pentecostalism where we go the other direction and we go way too far. Now, here's the point I want to get across in the next just few minutes. If you want to understand Acts 2, 38 and 39, you have to understand the context. And most of us don't. Most of us simply read it, we take it, we pull it out of the text. Instead of leaving it in the context and understanding what happened that day on Pentecost over 2,000 years ago. What was the context 
of this passage. It's the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of three major festivals of the Jews. In the spring, in, in, in March, and uh, uh, early April, they would celebrate Passover. We call it Easter today. And that's when Jesus died. He died on Passover. Fifty days later, late May, early June, you had Pentecost. It's the feast of, of, of uh, uh, the new fruit, the, the harvest that was coming in. It's oftentimes called the Feast of Weeks. And then in uh, late September, early October, you had the Feast of Tabernacles, a celebration of God's protective care while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. Pentecost itself was about celebrating the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And the reason Pentecost is when God started his kingdom, the church, was because he wanted to mimic what Moses had done. Moses had given the law at Mount Sinai, but Isaiah and Micah both, quoting almost identical texts, says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his path. And then look at the last sentence here. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord is going to go out from Jerusalem. So the apostles come together, and John Micah talked about this last week, to await for being clothed with power from on high. Now here's where we've really got to understand the context of the first century. What you see up here on the screen is a baptistry. Jews called it a mikvah. This is a baptistry literally within steps of the southern entrance of the temple. I've been there. I've looked at it. And these baptistries are literally scattered all over the area around the entrance to the temple. Not just one. There are multitudes of these. And not just small ones. This is a one-person baptistry. They actually had large ones. This one here is the Pool of Siloam. It's on the southern tip of the Temple Mount. And it's a huge baptistry. It wasn't there to draw water. It wasn't there to bathe. It was there to be immersed before going into the temple. This is on the south side. You go to the north side and you have, you see up here in the right-hand corner, what's called Bethesda. Bethesda is another giant baptistry. Now, why are these individual baptistries? Why are these giant baptistries all around the Temple Mount? Because you see... Baptism was a part of first century Jewish life. You were immersed on a regular basis. In other words, before you went to synagogue on the Sabbath day, guess what you did? You went to a mikvah and you immersed yourself. When you went to the temple, you did not enter the temple without being immersed. In fact, the question, do you have to be immersed to go into the temple? Are you kidding me? Go ahead and try and see what happens. And so on days like Pentecost, guess what the people were there to do? They were there to go to the temple. Guess what they had to do before they went into the temple? They had to be immersed. And so when Peter and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew are empowered with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in these languages that they had never studied and begin to proclaim the Word of God, here's people who are in Jerusalem on the way to the temple 
And before going in, they were going to be baptized. Thousands of them. Tens of thousands of them. And you see, that's one of the problems we have in the 20th century. We don't realize how important baptism was to first century Jews. That's why these two Jewish translations know how to translate the word. They understood the first century culture. All Jews were baptized on a regular basis over and over and over again. And then Peter comes. And he preaches a powerful sermon about who Jesus is. And then he says, as he brings the sermon to an end, David did not ascend to heaven. In chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus had ascended. Peter had watched it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110.1. If you don't know it by now, you've not been listening to me preach. Most often quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's about Jesus taking his rightful place at God's right hand, receiving the kingdom of God, and ruling over the world until all enemies are made his footstool. And then look at how Peter ends his sermon. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, we say. He would have said Yeshua. He has made him whom you crucified, both Kyrios, Lord, and Messiah, the Messiah. And the people that day who heard it were, were blown away. Their response is, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And in Acts 2, 38 and 39, two streams of Old Testament prophecies come together at once. Number one is the promise of forgiveness. Going back to Jeremiah, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. The covenant we just celebrated a few moments ago. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, what was amazing about the first century in Acts 2.38 is they weren't asking, do I have to be baptized to be forgiven? They were asking, I only have to be baptized once? Yeah. Be immersed one time in the name of Yeshua. And God's going to forgive your sins and remember them no more. You mean I don't have to be immersed every time I come to the assembly? No. I don't have to be immersed every time I come for Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles? No. You see, your, your days of being immersed over and over and over again have ended. Be immersed one time in the name of Yeshua for the forgiveness of your sins. And then the second stream that comes together, the most important stream, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Our verse today... Here in Acts chapter 1, and notice this is out of the Tree of Life translation. He says to them, stay within uh, Jerusalem. You wait there, don't leave, but wait for what the Father promised. What was the promise of the Father? Well, Peter tells us what the promise was. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. I'm going to give you a new gift. A gift that Ezekiel says, I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to move you so that you can follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
I mean, you want to know why so oftentimes in churches of Christ we still struggle with sin? It's because we fail to believe in the promise of God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit will not work where He is not recognized. It is that simple. And then John 14, 13, Jesus said, The Spirit of truth, you know Him, for He lives with you. But you get this, He's going to be in you. And it's that Spirit in us. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift to stand beside you, to walk with you, to help you, to move you, to strengthen you, to transform you into the image of my Son. That promise is not for you. It's for you, your children, for as many as the Lord our God shall call. And that's the promise of God. And so... The question not asked on the day of Pentecost was this one. Do I have to be baptized to be saved? No one asked that question on the day of Pentecost. Here's the question they did ask. Let me go back. The question they did ask is, will I be immersed in the name of Jesus, confessing him to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah? And you need to understand why that question was asked. Jesus had been crucified 50 days before this day. 50 days, month, two-thirds of a month. And, and so many people were still afraid that if you confess Jesus as the Messiah, you know what would happen to you? Look at John 9, 22. This is a story of a parents of a blind man. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Why? Who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of synagogue. You see, you, you, you proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and you can't come to synagogue, the place where you've grown up all your life, the church was, that was your church where your parents attended, your grandparents attended. I mean, the church that was everything to you. You confess Jesus as the Messiah and you're going to be put out of that synagogue. And so that day, the question that everyone had to ask was this simple question. Am I courageous enough to step into the water, confess Jesus to be the Messiah, and be baptized so that I can receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, confessing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and being baptized into His name might just cost you everything, with the exception of your soul. That's what would be saved. And if you don't believe it, read the rest of the book of Acts. How many people who literally gave their life because they were willing to confess Jesus and be baptized in his name. So those who received his message were immersed. Tree of Life translation. And that day about 3,000 souls. There would have been probably 120,000 people there that day. But 3,000 of them. Some 2% of the entire population of Jerusalem said yes to Jesus. So do you have to be baptized to be saved? I get that question all the time. It's the wrong question. The question is, do you have to love Jesus to be saved? Because you see, if you love Jesus, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Last week, John Micah talked about the importance of being clothed with power. It's not just that we're clothed with power when we're baptized, but... More importantly, we're clothed with Jesus himself. Paul, writing many years later, says, For all of you 
who were baptized into Christ, baptized confessing the Messiah, have clothed yourself with Christ. Picture's a simple picture. You go to the water and you're carrying your sins. You go into the water and those sins are washed away. And you come up the other side and you're now clothed with Jesus Christ himself. And that's what baptism is all about. The debates that we debate, I mean, unfortunately, they're just these theological nonsense. It's time for us to come back to Jesus and to say, you know what? I want to be someone who's willing to confess he is the Messiah. I want the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want my past sins washed away. I want to be a child of God, clothed in Jesus Christ. You can always do that. Even though we're not offering an invitation, you always have the privilege. Just call me, see one of our elders. Brother Rod's here up in the balcony. He'd be happy to, to talk to you, to baptize you. I'd be happy to do that. If you've never been clothed with Christ, what are you waiting for? Do it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful passage in Acts 2, 38 and 39. And your promise, Father, to remember our sins no more and to give us your Holy Spirit. May, Father, we realize that when we go down into the water, that yes, Father, you are clothing us with Christ, you're empowering us with your Spirit, you're making us your child. Father, you are inviting us into your kingdom. Thank you. And may, Father, we not ask foolish questions of do I have to, but, Father, when can I? And we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Does everyone please stand as we sing?